0: Clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events.
2: Tune in for a balanced view
3: of the other side of the news.
4: Welcome.
0: My name is Timothy Saunders. And I'm one of your trio of co-hosts on this 53rd edition of The Other Side of the News. I'm speaking to you this early morning from southwest Turkey, which for many of you may be situated on the other side of the planet. As the dawn chorus begins to practice its scales here, hopefully many of you are relaxing into your evening, eager to hear some fascinating insights from our latest guest. I will soon be joined by co-host and producer, Kintia together with co-host and researcher, Annette Driscoll, who are speaking this evening as usual from the infamous wheelhouse in California. This show is entitled Legacy of the Silent Initiates. Have you ever wondered how reality pans out? How we create history day after day? Do we form a totally random and organic path? Do we follow a predetermined script? Or are we guided by certain iconic figures a legacy of secret initiates. Throughout history, there have been certain people who we mostly celebrate, who have acted as guides during mankind's evolving journey. When we return our attention to the dawn of time, we encounter key figures such as Osiris, Quatsukotl, and Zazudra. While their origin and timeline may share very little in common, they are each well known as great architects of civilization. What's more, when zooming in more closely, they do share some characteristics. They each arrived aboard a vessel, were often tall and bearded, had an affiliation with a serpent, and brought in a significantly higher level of knowledge to humanity in one significant step. While I mention only three names here, this principle is well known all over the planet and almost every ancient culture has such an inspirational leader. From the Dogon tribe in Africa, who knew detailed information about Sirius A and B well before telescopes could even see the second star, to inhabitants of Easter Island and the ancient Sumerians who share icons carved on rocks at different times in history and on different sides of the planet. Another common element in our recorded history is the mention of the Great Flood Myth. And when we consider the ocean is symbolic of both the great seas of our world as well as the space between our planets, this myth also appears to the depths of almost every culture worldwide. Evidence is abundance on our planet as well on Earth's not-so-distant cousin, Mars. Could it be that certain individuals not only survived this Great Flood, but also intentionally concentrated their knowledge of a previous civilization with a view to seed new generations. Was Gobekli Tepe an assembly point after the ice age, a point for humanity to regroup after this great catastrophe, a point where certain initiates were empowered with knowledge to plant a new crop of seeds to grow a new evolved incarnation of humanity. Fast forwarding through history, there have been certain other empowered individuals that appear to be so far ahead of their time in terms of confidence and knowledge, manifesting new belief systems, science, architecture, and industry. So much so, great periods of positive change have occurred, such as Akhenaten's Amana City, the Great Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, to name a few. And many of these iconic figures, such as Da Vinci, Nikola Tesla, and many, many more, are said to draw their knowledge from their dream time or even channel from a universal consciousness. However, great changes have also occurred with less than positive results. The Dark Ages, the World Wars and the Great Depression. Are these periods in human history also guided by initiates? Are we pawns on a great three-dimensional chessboard? Or are these negative figures also initiates? If so, from which fraternity? Is it really necessary for humanity to experience both sides of the line drawn in the sand? If so, from where do these initiates draw their knowledge from? Is there a subterranean river of knowledge that is constantly guiding humanity, or perhaps more than one? They say history is written by the victors, however that is a very subjective view. Right now, humanity is facing a great challenge between truth and the new cult of religion, inversely named science. It seems the ones currently attempting to guide humanity are pushing us to close our connection with universal consciousness in favor of manifesting a digital or synthetic perception of reality. The minority seems hell-bent on blackmailing us to accept an experimental mRNA injection to social distance, to wear unhealthy masks, and to strangle our global economy, all with a view to avoid an alleged deadly virus that requires an inappropriate and manipulated PCR, which can be geared up or down by the number of cycles to deliver the desired result, to even highlight its possible existence of COVID-19. And don't forget, don't let me get started on the untested mRNA manipulation through what is being masked as a vaccination, which basically allows the manufacturers to avoid any liability. Keith, please play sound excerpt A.
4: Yes! Oh, yes! Uh, why are you not clapping for the NHS? Uh... If you're not going to clap, that means you should not be allowed to receive any medical treatment. That's fine. In fact, since medical masks are in such short supply at the moment, you should not be allowed to have a mask. Okay. No, it most certainly is not okay. You're being selfish. If you're not going to wear a mask, you shouldn't be allowed to get the vaccine. Oh. Mm, Not so arrogant now, are you? Let's see how well you cope in this deadly pandemic with no help from the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, it's all right. You can
5: keep it, thanks.
4: But, but but that's selfish! If you refuse to get the jab, you should not be allowed to participate in society. Yeah!
5: Okay.
4: I mean it! You shouldn't be allowed to go to restaurants or concerts or go to work or go on a plane!
5: I never really enjoyed any of that stuff anyway.
4: Oh, really? So what exactly are you going to do if you can't join in and do all the normal things that normal people like me do? I'll
5: probably just carry on meditating and growing vegetables and playing music and, well, I'll just try and keep out of your way.
4: But, But that's selfish! All right. If you're not going to spend your time here on this planet supporting the economy by buying goods and services that you don't need, you should not be allowed to be alive!
5: Okay, I'll leave you to it. Uh, what? Death is an illusion. Everything's just a continuous flow of energy and we all have the choice to humble ourselves and let the spirit guide us as we transcend this perception of a lived physical experience so nobody really dies.
4: But that's... No, wait! Stop! Come back here right now! People who transcend this perception of a lived physical experience are being selfish!
5: Selfish! Selfish! Selfish!
0: That made me chuckle. That was a, an excerpt from a multidimensional cartoon created by Tense. Interesting handle when we reverse it. And also Jeff Berwick recently featured this in one of his podcasts. However, I just felt it was just too good to ignore. So while much of humanity is well aware of this attempted at manipulation and social engineering, there are still many of the program flock who remain hell-bent on following the advice from the superficial advisors through mainstream media. So are the puppet masters behind these weak-minded presenters and leaders also initiates? Or have they been hacked somehow along the way? I very much look forward to hearing our guests' perspective regarding this essential awakening process, all with a view to illuminate the best path to lead us to a positive outcome. You may find us at www.theothersideofbidnight.com. Click on the other side of the news in the drop-down menu, or kindly scroll down to tonight's white the other side of the new show banner, there you will see details for the show, quick links to our bios, as well as links to our show items, references, and selected research. as usual, there is a huge collection of information to read, watch, and listen to, most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. I urge you to study them and even download your own copies sooner than later, as the censorship robots are working around the clock to rewrite our history in real time during the last week. We have once again been inundated by a deluge of remarkable events and headlines reported in the news to discuss and present each topic in correct context could all too easily fill up the entire show by itself, as the other side of the news is not per se a typical news show, and in order to make the best use of our available airtime, I believe we should plot a direct course to greet the rest of our team and to introduce our special guest, who has appeared too many times to mention on the other side of midnight. Georgia Lambert. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Annetta. Have you issued any sanctions on any foreign nations this week?
6: (laughs) If I only could. (laughs) This is Annetta. And the dates. Boy, the dates this week. I wanted to talk about, I have quite a bit to cover, but I want to talk a little bit historically where we set in, in relationship to dates because these societies that we talk about are these initiates. Numerology, dates astrological things, they're all very, very important. So I just wanted to bring up what were what the context were coming from. So April 14th, April 14th was the sinking of the Titanic. And it was in that year that it happened. It was also the year that the banking, the banksters, got together and created the um, Federal Reserve central Centralized Banking. Now, that was really important because we had, in the United States, we had a a constitutional right to create our own currency. And they did not, the bankers did not want us to have that. And there's a long history. And in fact, I want to cover this next week because there was so much here. I can't really cover it in this short time. But I, um, really, it was, it's incredibly important. And it was, I believe, uh, a ritual sinking. In other words, a ritual Sacrifice. And I'll come back to that next week. But also, April 15th, in 1865, President Lincoln was assassinated. That was 156 years ago, which is very much tied to the banking thing. And you'll see what I mean in a second. And then April 16th, Lincoln signed the Compensated Emancipation Act, ending slavery. That was 1862. That was 159 years ago. So, April 17th, President Kennedy leads us to the Bay of Pigs missile scare. And that was a, a nuclear missile scare. It was DEFCON 2. And uh, I'll come back to that, too. So then April 18th. So you can see every day this week is pretty interesting. We had the bombing of the embassy in Beirut, and it killed 63 people in 1983. April 19th. So now I'm going to finally talk about something that isn't killing people. Um. George Washington, he led the first battle in the American Revolution, and it was the uh, battles of Lexington and Concord. And that's super important in context of what I'm going to be talking about, too. So then there's April 20th, and that's what it all hinges around. All the bankster stuff, all of the things is the 150th anniversary on the 20th of the 1871 Act of England and this whole event this whole time that we're living in in my opinion is about the 1871 act of England being reversed and this is why these dates are so important because as we'll go through and this will take more than a few shows but as we go through time we'll find out that all of these things that I'm going to talk about now have to do with the banksters wanting to stay in control and. The banksters when they when they got control and how they took over countries not just not just America but how it affected all the countries around the world and how we're all so inextricably tied together and why this battle is so fierce in the United States and why the banksters are so focused on it because it it will affect the rest of the planet and I hope I can I can kind of express that over the next couple of weeks to you all the different parts but. It's going to take more research on my part and more, more, more preparation than I had. So going along the same vein here with the fake stream media and what they're doing with the propaganda machine, I wanted to go into a few things around uh, Project Veritas. I don't know what sources all of our listeners have for media besides us, but this week we had a real bombshell. Let's talk about our good friend Charlie Chester over here at CNN. He says, I quote, COVID gangbusters with ratings, right? Which is why we constantly have the death toll on the side, which I have a major problem with, with how we're tallying how many people die every day. Like, why isn't it high enough, you know, today? Like, it would make our point better if it was higher. And I'm like, well, I'm fucking rallying you know for that's the problem we're doing that it's fear fear that really drives the numbers fear the thing that keeps you tuned in great so that's one part of the propaganda but then there's more like all of the videos that came out recently of all these famous or celebrity people getting the jab yeah the only problem is a lot of them were caught with the fake Hollywood uh, syringes, where the needle just is spring-loaded back in. And there's lots of videos about that. Then, you know, there's old Tucker Carlson there, again, asking some questions around the numbers and, you know, not getting any answers. There are representatives asking questions. All of these are wonderful videos to watch, and I hope to get them all up in the, uh, in the, the page in the back here. But, you know, all of that's going on. In the meantime, New York's offering $9,000 incentives to change uh, what people died of. So they died of COVID. Great way to get the numbers to spike. Um, ACO says that they're going to offer funeral aid from FEMA. So if your loved one's death certificate does not have a COVID listed, you can have that put in, she says. That's a quote. So then we're also... um, Announcing in, when when they were announcing that this is actually probably not propaganda. This is actually the real thing that happened in Denmark when they are announcing the uh, discontinuation of the AstraZeneca vax. Tanya Eriksson, director of medicine agency of Denmark, literally topples over uh, on stage, just like we saw that nurse do. Um, unfortunately, that uh, her the name escapes me, but her name was Tiffany, and she. I think she passed out about you know a few seconds into her presentation and we've never heard from her again it's um strongly rumored that she didn't make it anyway and if she did why has she never spoken again Hmm. so uh, I wanted to bring up a little bit too uh uh, the Italy is also hot on the tracks of Bill Gates and uh, he is in big doo-doo because um uh, an Italian MP has called for billionaire Bill Gates to face trial in the International Criminal Court for charges of crimes against humanity. And uh, a member of Italian I can't say her name. Her name's Sarah. Hmm. Uh, a member of Italy's Parliament is accusing Microsoft founder Gates of working on depopulation and dictatorial control pa- plans around the world. And that's really interesting with this next little bit, because something that no one's talking about, but it definitely is happening, is that women of childbearing age are having a particularly rough time with these vaccines. Like I said a few months back, I predicted, and not my prediction so much, is that I just did the research, and this looked to be very problematic with uh, miscarriages and stillbirths. Uh, I also felt because of what I had read and the patents that they had placed that we were going to have a fertility issue. Well, it turns out, yes, it looks that way. Women that are getting the jab are are having uh, miscarriages. So they are having stillbirths. And they are having very heavy, painful, irregular periods. Really messed up. But here's the weirdest thing. People that are around people for lengths of time that have had the vaccine and are apparently shedding the virus those people are having the same kinds of problems from just being around the vaccinated people which was something we talked about a few weeks ago as a possibility well it's becoming a reality and i would venture to say that that we're going to see a spade of infertility like the planet has never known i believe that this is part of the agenda we'll see if i'm right or wrong on that one um but it's very disturbing nonetheless. And uh actually so disturbing that Pfizer, and uh there's some whistleblowers coming out. This is Pfizer's is actually recommending that their employees do not take the jab. Hmm. what does that tell you? Hmm. Yeah, it makes you go, hmm, a lot. Okay, so uh, but since Dr. Fraudchi won't uh talk about anything regarding numbers, I will. Okay, so we talked about this. There's an article the CDC put out. It's a little bit old now, but certainly I'm sure it hasn't changed as far as the ratios go. They had listed at the time 153,504 deaths. The um, only problem with that is is the real number they've come out to admit is actually 9,210. How did they get to that number? Well, these were the people that just died of COVID, and that's a question, too, because I don't know where the flu and the pneumonia went for this year. Uh, or last year, I should say this year, they've decided not to count it. Hmm, makes you wonder how all of a sudden on the planet Earth, when we've had flu forever, now we don't. Okay, interesting. So yeah, I believe that too. Uh, so anyway, the average, the ninety-four percent of the people had an average of two point six comorbidities, which we've heard a lot. Um, and um, and these are the words from the CDC. Overwhelmingly, the majority of the people that died were of an advanced age. So just to make sure that they aren't the only ones at this party, the National Health Services out of the UK had reported there were 125,000 people that died of COVID. But in reality, the number was actually 3,545. 83,766 uh, eighty-three thousand nine hundred seven hundred and sixty-six had pre-existing conditions, and more than half of those of the overall deaths were 80 plus years old, which would kind of indicate that some of those people may have just died of old age, because things fail. So here, this is the real thing we get to, is with a, with a recovery rate of 99.97%, and a vaccine with an efficiency rate of 70%, uh, so that's the chances of not getting COVID, but if you do get COVID, your and your immune system is completely shot. Why? Because these are both gene modifiers, and they both affect the immune system. Uh, so now you're supposed to get this COVID thing that has all of these potential side effects, and people are getting this and say, "Well, I'm I'm fine. It didn't happen to me." Well, that's great because the mRNA vaccines have never been able to get through an animal study, and here's here's a real. Uh, disturbing thing that I found. I found it from several sources. And uh, this was from DGAL, which is a uh, a research company that projects, it's a futurist company that projects what's going to happen. And um, they were looking at the U.S. population in 2017 at 327 million. And uh, then if you look, what they expect the population to be in 2025 which is a mere four four years away, they expect it to be 100 million. So that tells you something, and I think what it's telling you is the mRNA studies have never been able to get through the animal studies because all of the um, subjects, the animal subjects, are dead in three years. That combined with, I believe, what we're looking at is infertility issues doesn't look good for the population. But that was their agenda all along, take over the, the uh, turn everyone into a slave that survives this. So uh, don't take the vaccine would be my advice. Okay, so I wanted to just draw some corollaries that I came up with. Um, and I titled this, The Mask Began to Fall Off, just for my own notes. I'm just going to read you what I wrote down because it's fairly complicated. But I think you'll get the idea. So, the Chinese Biological Laboratory in Wuhan is owned by GlaxoSmithKline, which accidentally owns Pfizer, the one who makes the vaccine against the virus, which was accidentally started at the Wuhan Biological Lab and which was accidentally funded by none other than Dr. Fraudchi, who just by chance promotes the vaccine. GlaxoSmithKline is managed by the finance division of BlackRock, which Incidentally, manages finances of the open foundation company, the Soros Foundation, actually, which accidentally manages the French AXA. Soros, by chance, owns the German company Winther, which happened to build a Chinese laboratory in Wuhan and was bought by German Alliance, which coincidentally has Vanguard as a shareholder who, by chance controls central banks, and manages about a third of the global investment capital. BlackRock is also, coincidentally, a major shareholder of Microsoft, owned by Bill Gates, we all know that, who somehow is a shareholder of Pfizer, which, remember, sells a miracle vaccine and, coincidentally, is now the first sponsor of WHO. Now, you understand, of course, how a dead bat sold in a wet market in China has infected the entire planet. The deep state, its this is not about protecting the people. It's not about preventing the spread or the cure for the virus. This is about greed, corruption, power, and control for them. So, my opinion, but I have some pretty good evidence there too. Okay, so the next thing I want to cover a little bit is, you know, the bankers. The bankers are behind all this. The foundational piece here is about money, control, greed. And so... You know, there's a couple things that make a lot of money there. They have, uh, you know, of course, big pharma, huge, right? The whole medical industrial complex. War is another really great one. And uh, trafficking, human trafficking. We have more slavery now on the planet than ever before. So and then we've got a lot of things going on financially, like both Russia and Turkey have left the centralized banking system. Last year, the United States removed the Federal Reserve and integrated it into the U.S. Treasury. This is huge, and no one's even reporting on it. It's enormous. Another thing that's really interesting this week is Turkey bans the use of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin to purchase goods and services. Hmm. Whoops. What could be happening there? Well, I'll tell you what. I pulled my Bitcoin out this week and invested it in something else. I'll give you a clue. All right. So then there's the digital passports and I, I don't I'm not going to get into all of that, but this is really scary stuff and it is definitely tied to the money because when you start having that, they can control you through social credit system very easily. And you might think, "Oh, that's pretty far away." Well, let me tell you. This is the little bit of um a little bit of uh, international stuff going on right now. Right now, we have basically a World War III scenario building up. And you notice that the media is eerily silent on this, by and large. China is definitely threatening Taiwan, and they've also been rattling sabers towards Philippines and also going into disputed territory with Japan. In the meantime, China is telling Japan's deputy prime minister to drink a glass of treated Fukushima water after Tokyo announced that it was safe to dump it into the Pacific Ocean. That wasn't very friendly, now was it? So then there's uh, Miramar, and uh, I wanted to mention that because there's a lot of propaganda. Even my Proton Mail sent me an email, which I sent them a rather interesting reply back that I didn't want their propaganda coming through Proton Mail, of all things, to me. But basically, they were saying that this was a coup that was not, you know, not for the people. Well, it's very much sides what we have going on here, where they had an election. Uh the election was fraudulent. It had the same Dominion machines, uh, same Smartmatic software, and the people didn't want uh that to happen. And so there was a uh the military took over, and uh they had these uh protests, but the protests, interestingly enough, were funded by George Soros, and we know that they were funded because for two reasons. They had signage, and interestingly enough, it was in the alphabet that we use, which people of that country do not and it was all in perfect english and the signs were all printed up all nice and pretty so that in the states we could read them in english-speaking countries and then the other thing is is about a week and a half ago they froze all george soros's funds over there and now there's no one to pay those protesters and suddenly they have dried up so you know put two and two together and then let's you know, see another war arena. We have a big thing going on between Iran and Israel. There's been a number of swipes, uh, ships ramming other ships, and you know, bombing out nuclear facilities, things like that. Not good. In mixed up in all that mess is Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Syria, Egypt, and Turkey. And Turkey's a really interesting point here because Turkey is allied with many people that are now going across net cross hairs with each other cross something cross interests. So that's a real tricky one. And then some countries are feeling like Turkey's too much of a big bully in the area. So there's all different stuff going on there. Obviously a, a fire keg there. And then most people are aware that the Ukraine and Belarus and Russia are all involved in a dispute. And there has been active firefight and bombings and there have been a few casualties the eight russian diplomats were sent out of the united states and russia also sent 10 diplomats back the other way and put restrictions on people coming into the country so this is not very friendly so we have the us with the nato and and all that too and so It's really a mess when you're weak. You know, your enemies come in when you're strong. You know, they kind of go away. Clearly, we're weak right now. So that's the bad news. The good news is there are governments falling all over the world that are terribly corrupt. Mr. Frisch is a former chief detective in the Merkel regime, and he says that it will fall before summer. One can only hope. So I'm going to wrap this up with a little bit about the evergreen ever-given ship saga, which seems to have fallen to the back burner along with Andrew Como and him murdering everybody in nursing homes and, oh, let's not forget 10 women have come forward, but uh, we know what the media would do with that if it was on the other, the shoe was on the other foot. But anyway, that enough said. So the, the boat was salvaged, and this is from International Salvage Law. A successful salver is entitled to a generous reward, one which is the value of the vessel and its contents after the salvage is complete. So that's very interesting because there have been a number of things that have said to have been found on the ship. We're still waiting confirmation because I really believe they're keeping it for some other purpose, but we'll see. uh, There was a really, really interesting turkish newscast this past week where a gentleman got on there and he spoke quite clearly about what the contents that were on the ship and essentially what he said it was bill gates 30-year project that he had put into and the reason he was buying up all this farmland which he has been not just in the united states but all over the world is that it was a, a climate change thing that he would go up and basically stop the Sun from shining and also it would poison the earth so we would have massive uh, starvation and, and hunger on the planet and uh, well that's not good um, so you know our buddies at CNN remember our guy there you know mr. Charlie there he um, he had a few things to say too about this topic he said Oh, he goes, I think there's COVID fatigue. So like whenever a new story comes up, they're going to latch onto it. They've already announced it in our office that once the public is, well, they'll be open to it. We're going to start focusing mainly on climate. It's going to be our focus, like focus was to get, like our focus was to get Trump out of office, right? Without saying it, that's what it was, right? Right. COVID will taper off to the point that it's not a problem anymore. Climate change can take years. So CNN will probably be able to milk that quite a bit. Climate change is going to be around. It's going to be the next COVID thing for CNN. Fear sells. So there you know that it's, you know, definitely they're manipulating anyone who's still watching that. can't imagine. And then I want to close it off with kind of a funny, which is, I read this, Bill Gates is claiming that... A cow is, uh, has more pollution than a car. And so here's the funny part. This guy says, allow me to propose this. I'll lock myself in a garage with a cow overnight. Bill can lock himself in his garage with a running car. In the morning, we can meet up and discuss the results. And with that, we'll go back to Kinthea. They are
7: so few. There in the thousands, we are Billions, we have billions of people. So they need technology, very advanced technology, to be able to control us. And that is where AI, 5G comes in. And then through the vaccine, also get rid of two thirds of us. So it's like a very, very, very dark agenda they want to play out. But I tell you, the way I see the future, oh my God, fantastic. Or oh, like my mom yeah. said, fan-bloody-tastic. Hi, this is Ola Damagod from LightOnConspiracies.com. You know, over the years I've done some 500 to 1,000 international interviews, and I just want to say the other side of the news is one of my favorite shows. So, enjoy. Enjoy.
2: Welcome back to The Other Side of the News. Tonight, our guest is Georgia Lambert, and co-hosting are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kinthea. The show is called Legacy of the Silent Initiates. So I'm only going to make a brief comment here and then bring Georgia on. I want to say that these are times of great contrast, and I keep talking about parallel universes and Uh, I happened to hear a a YouTube, wasn't a YouTube, it was a video with David Icke, and he's talking about that we're living in a a simulation, like the movie Matrix. And he was talking about how in the simulation, the people are caught in it because they're caught in the, they're caught up in their mind energy and not their heart energy. And parallel with that, I really want to underline the importance of the heart energy, the open heart energy. Uh, my links refer to that and compassion. There's a link there, the four faces of compassion. And I, for me personally, that's the way through this. It's compassion for others compassion for a divine plan compassion for ourselves and compassion for the actions of the what the flow of action so we can't make a change just from our minds we need to include more of ourselves we need to come back into our heart energy and that's all I'm going to say here because I'm so excited to bring Georgia on. Let me give you a brief synopsis of who Georgia is. She's a, she's a dear friend. I really cherish her. So Georgia Lambert has over 50 years of experience in the field of esoteric studies, receiving formal training in Eastern and Western disciplines, methods, and traditions. Georgia has taught at the College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific, the Institute for Advancement of Human Potential, and at the Philosophical Research Society for 10 years under Manley P. Hall. In England, she gave seminars for the Scientific and Medical Network at St. Catherine's College in Oxford and for the Rec and Trust at Regents Park College, London. Her numerous lectures include hospitals, health centers, universities, and among them, the Seven Rays, the Edgar Cayce Foundation, the Philosophical Society, the 1985 National Cranial Conference, and even a county correctional facility. In 1989, she became the first woman to address the Scottish Rite Research Group on the higher degrees of masonry. In 1995, 1996, and 97 she gave presentations to the Pacific Southwest Regional Conclaves of the Rosicrucian Order, AMORC, both in the United States and in Canada. In 2001, she was invited to participate in a think tank under the umbrella of the Aerospace Corporation on the subject of science and education. Her artwork was featured at an education summit for the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Her publishing credits include articles in the British Holistic Health Journal, caduces, and appearances on both radio and television. Her website address is lambertslodge.com. That's L-A-M-B-E-R-T-S lodge.com. So, welcome, Georgia. Welcome, welcome. (laughs) Good evening, all. So, Georgia, you are a really fascinating person. And I know that you grew up, of all things, in a military family. And I'm trying to understand how you got from where you were as a young person into esoterics. What led you down this path? Oh, that's a
8: whole long story. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Needless to say, I started all this stuff pretty young at twelve and a half, and by fourteen, I was reading Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine and Steiner and Gurdjieff and so on and so forth wow. um, so i've I've had quite an eclectic background, and what I have for you tonight, I think, is something
2: that perhaps
8: your listeners have not heard before.
2: well, well I'm sure we haven't. I had no idea that the Rosicrucians had an impact on. Our founding fathers?
8: Most people don't. Uh, the, the three main esoteric influences that uh, really shaped this country are, of course, the Freemasons, which everybody knows about, um, because most of our founding fathers were Freemasons and did, you know, pretty outward ceremonies. But the other two influences were the Iroquois nation, which was a band of, of Native American tribes that at one time were at war with one another, but formed a federation and were at peace for a couple of hundred years before the Europeans came to the United States. And a lot of their thought and procedures influenced some of our founding fathers. The really? Third, yeah. And that's a whole nother night we could do something on the Iroquois
2: Nation. Right. Uh, people, certainly... Mm-hmm. That's certainly yeah. not the view we hear of them, you know, like, oh, there's some primitives. That, you no, know.
8: no, they're very sophisticated. And uh, in terms of, of their political structure, uh, again, can you imagine several hundred years of peace? Uh, we haven't been able to manage that, you know? Not at all. Uh, and the, And the third one, besides the Iroquois Nation and the Freemasons, were the Rosicrucians. Now, Tonight, it's not my province to talk about, you know, what the Rosicrucians believed in or who they were, or who their history is. That is vast and it's really the subject for another night all in itself. But what I want to do tonight is tell the story of some of the Rosicrucian input to our early foundings of this nation. Things like, did you know that they provided the first observatory in the United States. They printed the first American Bible in the United States. The first translations of the Declaration of Independence that went out to other nations after July 4th were on a Rosicrucian press and translated by a Rosicrucian leader. Um, The first money was printed uh, on a Rosicrucian press, and I want to also tell the story of the first Red Cross effort that was a Rosicrucian effort uh, during the Revolutionary War.
2: So it sounds like they were well organized and uh, also financially substantial that they were able to handle all this printing and distribute things. And...
8: Yeah, that's kind of what I want to lay out tonight, if if I if I may.
2: Certainly. Um
8: Let me give uh, people uh, a reference book um, if they want to find out more about the Rosicrucians. uh, And there are many Rosicrucian groups, not just the the more public ones. Um, But um, uh, the the best book to, to introduce you to it is called Rosicrucian Enlightenment. This is a classic in its field, and it's by a woman named Frances Yates, Y-A-T-E-S. And that'll give people a really good sort of overview. Um, A a couple of things before I get into specifics. Remember that at the Renaissance, there was a a big download of mind and a big leaping forward uh, by humanity. And a lot of the esoteric brotherhoods, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, and so on and so forth, um, or at least the progenitors of the th- of the Freemasons, uh, that had been secret for so long, uh, started to come out of the closet. Because as the Renaissance unfolded, a lot of these philosophic principles could now be worked out into manifestation. We think of Uh, Francis Bacon, uh, and his guiding hand, uh, pushing the colonization and the, the, um, the Virginia Company to, to colonize the United States and to, to try out, uh, some of these, uh, philosophical modalities. So the attention to the colonies wasn't the original Um, choice, the original choice to establish enlightened philosophical, um, politics was in Bohemia. But again, in a story too long to go into, that never unfolded. And so the attention was turned to the new world. One of the most important things, um, that contributed to the experiments that went on here was the sinking of the Spanish Armada? People mm-hmm. don't re- people don't realize that there were uh, inquisitors, you know, the Spanish Inquisition, on some of those Spanish ships, ready to set up in England. And if S- Spain had brought England back into Catholicism, uh, none of the experiments could have taken place here. So that was uh, a major, major um, coup. For the philosophic brotherhoods. So, in terms of how they set up shop here in the New World, it was in two movements that I want to briefly talk about tonight okay. uh, the, the original colony and then the spin off from that. The spin off from that was the one that really was into. Um, Interacting with William Penn and Ben Franklin and Washington and Jefferson and so on and so forth, so the the two um, movements, the first one that contributed to the initial uh, setting up shop here in the United States, uh, actually started in Germany. It was really a cooperative effort between Groups that were starting in Germany, Uh, remember that uh, Johann uh, Valentinus Andrea was a a major esoteric teacher in Germany. Jakob Burma and Johann Arndt were the main philosophic teachers that kind of uh, paved the way. So groups were being set up in Germany, in Holland, and in England. So uh this kind of contributed to the first movement to the United States. Let me just lay out some dates for you. I have some notes here because uh I'm terrible with with uh with years and dates.
2: <laughs>
8: um one of Jakob Burma's students was a fellow named Philip Jacob Spencer. Uh Spinner actually, who founded his own Rosicrucian study group. The group got so big that it attracted, as things always do, negative attention from the Lutherans, from the, you know, dyed-in-the-wool uh, Orthodox Christians. And the Lutherans began to call them the Pietists, or the most pious ones. Uh, Spencer's home, where the Rosicrucian group met, they called the Collegia Pietatis, and the Rosicrucians, uh, at that time, uh, developed the name Pietists themselves as sort of a cover story to hide their real activities. And when people do genealogy, they'll run across, um, Pietists, but this was really a cover word for the Rosicrucians.
2: May I jump in one second here? Because there's something that I want to understand better. So. I live close an hour away from the Rosicrucian Museum in San Jose. The Amor Rosicrucian. Right. And when I visited it, it's full of Egyptian artifacts. Yeah. yeah. So was this, um, this enlightenment group, was it basically, um, a descendants from an Egyptian theosophical uh, movement?
8: Not, not really other than, you know, the, the esoteric story is the same no matter where you go. There, there are many different outward Rosicrucian groups and, and offshoots. You know, Freemasonry has as its central mythos uh, the story of Hiram Abyss, the architect of, the, of Solomon's Temple. And Freemasonry draws a lot of its lineage from the Old Testament, as well as the Mithraic religion, which was the secret initiatic religion of the Roman soldiers that spread throughout Europe. The Rosicrucians uh, have for their central mythos uh, the story of who they call Father C.R.C., and uh, their heritage is uh, alchemical uh which a lot of that comes from Egypt Rem- remember that the the word alchemy comes from the word chem which is the ancient name for Egypt wow. so a lot of the the uh traditions uh come from that hermetic and alchemical heritage another thing that's interesting is that in freemasonry um the old testament uh and the kabbalistic uh esoteric tradition of uh, Judaism, uh, and and the Mithraic religion of the Roman soldiers were both exclusively male. And, of course, in uh, regular Freemasonry, they don't allow women, although there are many uh, offshoot, uh, cland- what they call clandestine lodges. The Rosicrucians, however, included women from the beginning. Uh, in fact, in the alchemical tradition, the alchemist, uh, had to work with the Soror Mystica or the mystic sister. So, uh, the feminine influence was always there within the Rosicrucian groups. That's but, wonderful.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I liked hearing that. <laughs> so, 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 so were the other groups kind of in conflict about that? I mean, the other faiths? Is this something that they put the Rosicrucians down for because women? Well,
8: well remember that not just because of women, but because, you know, um, orthodoxy has always gone after the esotericists, whether they be Templars or Freemasons or Rosicrucians or whomever. Um, mm-hmm. Never a big f- fan by, you know, the orthodoxy. So, Um, anyway, the Amort group, uh, which is one of two main Rosicrucian groups in the United States today. Um, uh, one is the Amort group that you were mentioning. Another is the Max Heindel group in Oceanside, California. The, the wonderful mystic Corinne Helene was part of the Max Heindel uh, group. And, um, the thing about the Rosicrucians is they, they have this thing where they go what they call dark every 108 years. In other words, uh, unlike some of the other esoteric brotherhoods, they, f- they f- found themselves in a, in a particular place. They establish a, uh, a teaching and healing center and traditions and they operate for 108 years and then they shut down and go dark and they for sell how
2: long? another 108 years they sell really? every- so it's like a breath of god
8: yeah they okay. they sell everything off and the manuscripts and secret teachings are held in certain families and then they go dark for 108 years and then they just believe that you know they it'll reemerge somewhere with new forms and new leaders, and
2: uh, will continue on. Which, but are they passing this down to their families when they go dark? Or like they just don't even talk about some, it any. Some fam- some families remember the dark period is a hundred and eight years, right? So yeah, I mean, so, how is it kept alive then? I mean, that's a couple generations there. Well, there's the faith that this.
8: Enlightenment and lineage will descend upon those that are born in the future that will reestablish things. It's, it's really interesting because it, 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 although it does have some drawbacks, it prevents a lot of the crystallization and orthodoxy that seeps into a lot of esoteric traditions because it's always born fresh, you know. The problem is today that around the world, you have all kinds of different Rosicrucian organizations, and they've all been founded at different times. Um, oh. and, and everything's connected on the Internet. So, you know, the thing about the Amort group uh, in, um, in San Jose is um, they're about to go dark. They're about to enter their dark period now, whether they're going to sell all that stuff off. Um, because they own like a city block with that Egyptian museum mm-hmm. of prime mm-hmm. prime real estate. Uh, and it's the best Egyptian museum outside of Cairo. So whether they're going to go dark or not, who knows? Um, I, I happen to think that the um, heads of that particular organization are not as spiritually inclined, shall we say, as... When it was founded. Mm. So who knows what's going to happen there. But, um, but anyway, you know, that's, that's basically, um, the idea that, you know, the overshadowing impulse, uh, sparks illumination in some people and it's reborn and it, you know, does its work for 108 years and then it goes to bed. Wow. With the, with the belief that it'll spring up again later. That's a deep trust. <laughs> it <laughs> is. It is. Yeah. So anyway, let me get back to this because I got a whole bunch of information that I've got to get, get out in a, in a pretty short time. Uh, so you've got this group in Germany, um, that was under Spinner. and, um, calling themselves the Pietist, and he dies in 1705, and a fellow named Frank succeeds him as grandmaster of the Pietist order in Germany. Uh, at that time, there were also groups in Holland and England who also started calling themselves Pietists. Um, now, Frank, who was the grandmaster at that time, had a cousin, and who was also a Rosicrucian, and into his keeping was placed this orphan child named Johannes Kelpius, who was later on a major player. And as a boy, Kelpius was sent to study in Tubingen, the center of an active Rosicrucian group headed by the very famous mathematician and astronomer Johann Jacob Zimmermann. And um, he wrote a lot of esoteric books and, and, uh, and teachings. And he wrote that a Rosicrucian group should sail for America and establish a community in the New World by 1694. So the young Kelpius became a student of this guy. And studying with him later established himself as a renowned scholar throughout Europe. And he was elected to a major post in the Rosicrucians to be founded in America. In other words, they were beginning to set up this group um, to, to make this American pilgrimage. And as they were setting up this group, it wasn't just, you know, rustics or, you know, people that couldn't make it in the old world. They were putting together the cream of the crop, scholars and teachers and healers and horticulturists and carpenters, and everything that they would require to set up a new foundation in the new world. As they were doing this, uh, in fact, uh, why don't we wait, because we're just coming up from uh, on a break, and uh, I'll continue with how they put this whole thing together.
2: So you're listening to The Other Side of the News, and our guest is Georgia Lambert. The show is called Legacy of the Silent Initiates. My co-hosts are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kinthea.
1: Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, Natural Healing Consultant. Welcome to The Other Side of the News where they're open to hearing the truth and take it seriously. The first thing you got to look at is the methods, like nothing else matters because that's where they describe the experiment so then you can decide if what you can conclude from the experiment, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's really really important because you know, they make false claims and people don't understand how to use statistics and all these things could be misleading. What I notice that they do now is they put the methods section at the very end. And in some papers, it's in a separate document that's like an addendum. So in other words, they just present the the results and conclusions and an introduction section, and nobody looks at the methods. But that's the most important thing, because if you don't know that, you don't actually know what they did. Because, you know, there's a lot of art to experimental design and uh, you know some people can be very clever about it some can be very elegant about it but there's also like many ways that things could be fudged and there's books on this right like one of Bill Gates favorite books how to lie with statistics Then you know you have the John Ioannidis article which is one of the most highly cited papers where he says more than half of all published research is false Right. So, mm. but, but how many scientists, when they go to read a paper, say there's a 50% chance that this article is false. So I better read it really carefully. Right. They don't do that. But all this clinical research, it's really just, it's really marketing. Yes. It, that, that's what it is. It's not actual research. With this the vaccine trials, you know, it, it's just, they basically designed it exactly, perfectly to show what they could say. You know, that bogus 95% effectiveness. uh, That's the the relative risk reduction of having a test. And it's not even the overall risk reduction would be like 0.4%. But they describe it that way. It's a statistical trick where they could say 95% and they also defined the outcome and then they had to wait seven days after the vaccine but all the people who got sick within that seven days didn't count you know all hmm. kinds of uh, tricks they're, they're they're experts <laughs> at this they know yeah. they know what they're doing and and it's really hard to even figure out what they're doing
6: good evening and welcome back to the other side of the news this evening. Our show is titled "Legacy of the Initiates," and I am co-hosting with Cynthia and Timothy Saunders. And our guest this evening is Georgia Lambert. And she left us off before break. We were in the middle of the histor- historical uh, kind of timeline or story behind the Rosicrucians. So continue on, Georgia. Okay.
8: So we were talking about the group that was uh, getting ready in Germany to make this pilgrimage to uh, the New World. At the same time that was going on, a similar thing was happening in Holland. Around 1675 or so in Amsterdam, there was a man by the name of Getchel who was the master of the Pietist Temple or the Rosicrucian Temple there. And uh, he was the editor of a lot of works by the, the uh, philosopher Jakob Burma. He was also a friend of, get this, William Penn, uh, who, of course, was chosen to be the Quaker governor of Pennsylvania in 1680. And mm-hmm. William Penn, through Gitchell, met uh, a fellow named Von Beber. And Beber bought a 1,000 acres of land in Pennsylvania from Governor Penn in 1683. And the purpose of this specifically was to establish a colony and the future site of the community planned by Kelpius, the Rosicrucian. So while this was going on in Germany and Holland, a third branch was going on in England, and this one was headed by a woman named uh, Jane uh, Leader, And she headed a Rosicrucian group, known as the Philadelphia Society, and one of her students was William Markham, who was later assigned to the deputy governor of Pennsylvania under William Penn. So you have two lineages focused into William Penn here, the connection into the new world. And they purchased uh, a whole bunch of land uh, and sailed to America and they landed in 1681, and they founded the primitive, at that point, farming colony, which they named Philadelphia. So that's where we get the name Philadelphia, from mm. this Rosa- Rosicrucian group that landed. And the colony was very successful, and it grew to over 500 in just a few years. They brought families and uh, again, purchased more land from William Penn. And in 1693 94, thereabouts, they charted another ship named the Sarah Maria to bring several hundred Rosicrucians to America. And just before the sailing of that, the uh, head guy died off, and Kelpius who was this little orphan that became this scholar, replaced him and became the head of this group. And they uh, founded this group, which was really the first uh, Rosicrucian major settlement uh, on the Wissahickon River. Uh, this was headed by Calpius and they built a tabernacle of 40 feet square aligned to the cardinal points of the compass. It contained a saul or a religious hall and a schoolroom, and on its roof they built America's first astronomical observatory. Uh, there was a few of them that were monastic, and they set up shop in natural caves In the particular area. Uh, It's interesting that in 1961, uh, a granite marker was put up in memory of Kelpius uh, beside the cave in Philadelphia's Fairmont Park, and people can still go there and see this uh, today. They also established one of the first and largest paper mills in North America at that time, as well as a bookbinding plant, and that'll be important here in a moment. They also established a herbarium, uh, the first scientific academy, the first ethical and cultural schools, and the first non-sectarian schools um, of theology and philosophy in the New World. Today, you can still see fragments of these buildings in what's known as Fairmont Park. Um, If you go there, the official pamphlets talk about the hermits that used to live there, and they've kind of recreated this. Um, but they weren't really hermits because these were families and communities that they brought. What they call hermits were really hermetists; those that studied the hermetic esoteric traditions. So they were the hermetists, not the hermits of Fairmont Park. And so that was their first establishment, and it went along fine for a while, but um, the people kind of got old and they began dying off, and they sort of branched off into sort of the next generation of this, which is more important to us. And this was the foundation at Ephrata. Now, the pictures that I have uh, that I sent you are some of the buildings of the Ephrata Cloisters. Um, some of them are original. Um, many of them have been reproduced, but you can get the flavor of what went on there. Um, and this is well known in the area. But again, the fact that they were Rosicrucians is not real visible. You have to know that that's what these uh hermits were were into and uh in some of the pictures you can see some of their reenactments with their monks and and um so on and so forth mm-hmm. um the community at Ephrata uh established a lot of buildings um there was a a particular Building where the men lived and studied, and and one for the women. These were those that were more the uh, monastic uh, part of the community. And Effruda became the first Red Cross effort in the United States. And let me tell you a quick story about that. Um, during the Revolutionary War. Um the uh f- forces of the new United States were having a really bad time uh Washington was retreating across Pennsylvania and get this date on september eleventh nine eleven you know how some dates kind of oh, echo, no, yes. through, echo <laughs> through history right mm-hmm. well on September eleventh and eight 8- 18,000 British soldiers under General Howe absolutely decimated the 11,000 colonists under Washington at the Battle of Brandywine. Now, everybody has heard of the Battle of Brandywine in our history books. But what you don't know is that after this decimation by the British troops, they were wondering what to do with the wounded because there were thousands and thousands of them. So they were trying to decide what to do, and it turned out that Washington knew the the head guy at the Ephrata community, a, a fellow by the name of Peter Miller, and he knew the ethics of that particular community. So Washington said, let's bring our wounded there. And according to, uh, certain diaries, it was, it's reported that the aid didn't want to have anything to do with those weird people <laughs> out at Ephraim. But Washington said, no, no, these are, these are ethical people. They'll take care of us. So they made this huge wagon train, basically, and put people in, in boxes on carts and took them to Ephrata. And there, um, the brothers and sisters at Ephrata took them in, gave up their own sleeping quarters, and their big uh, altar building was turned into a hospital. And they cared for the wounded. Uh, They, you know, Logged pails of milk around. They wrote letters home to their families. Um, anything that could be done, they did. And of course, they had, you know, knowledge of herbal medicine. And and uh, it wasn't just you know what they had in terms of knowledge of the day. They were a little bit more advanced. But it was overwhelming, and the brothers and sisters, you know, kept. On and on and on as long as there were wounded. Um, the problem was that after a while, um, typhus set in and it began to decimate not only the wounded, but the brothers and sisters of that particular community. And one by one, uh, they started succumbing and, uh, it got just really, really bad. Um, you know, at it, it the at the worst of it, uh, all of the blankets went to freezing troops. Um, uh, arcane books and and esoteric manuscripts were torn up and and used as stuffing and wadding for cartridges for the soldiers. Um, and the sickness got so bad that it just completely, almost completely, wiped out the community. What remained limped on till spring, uh, and, uh, finally the main buildings were set on fire to purify the area. Um, but, you know, historically that was the first real, uh, Red Cross effort. And it's interesting that the Red Cross is kind of like the Rose Cross of the Rosicrucians which was their symbol Hmm. so that was pretty much the completion of the group at Ephrata but before that um, Red Cross effort after the Battle of Brandywine there was a lot of other stuff that went on that was really really interesting Um, again in the Ephrata community you had the bookbinding and the paper mill and um ben franklin um became friends with some of the printers at ephrata and there was a lot of interaction back and forth uh so we've got washington and franklin both well versed in the Ephr- ephrata community and um knowing the the head guy there um Peter Miller, uh, which was originally his name was originally Peter Mueller, but he um Americanized it when when uh he came west. Um but Georgia. So, yes, Georgia. go ahead. It's yes. Timothy here. Yeah.
0: Sorry, Annette, did I step on your toes? No, oh, no, no. Did you have a question, Annette?
6: Well, I was gonna ask a question, but go ahead. I'll I'll come back to it.
0: you could, go- you go first, please.
6: Okay, well, I was, I was actually going to ask you, Georgia, so I, I was really interested in, uh, you're, you're giving us some of the uh, connections to the founding fathers, and how the Rosian, Rosicru- Rosicrucians um, influenced them, and I, I'm, I'm interested in that. But I also, we, we had talked a little bit about dates, and how dates work, right? Are uh-huh. they, was, was that part of their culture, like numerology and symbology, and that type of thing, and we think of initiates, or is this a completely different strain?
8: Well, that that's certainly part of esoteric teaching, and it would have been part of what they would know about, among many many other things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So
6: yeah, so yeah. So what's the what's the significance of 108 then? Before we lose that thought, there is there, I and mean, there must be a reason question. they. <laughs> oh, sorry, <laughs> Timothy. <laughs>
8: that's one of their secrets that they don't disclose.
5: <laughs>
8: mm, I see. Okay, well, so uh, it, it, it well, seems like an odd it, it it seems like an odd number, but um, that's always been the tradition.
0: Oh, it's it's not odd at all. No, I mean it's it, it's a perfect. It's, it's one of the special nine numbers. Uh huh. And yeah. Uh, so in, in my my day day hours, I, I design. Uh, I'm a designer, so I work on uh, a lot of. You know, yacht designs that type of thing interior, exterior design but i also tend to use like a uh like a, a sort of a code through the design and quite often i find that the, the number nine in terms of proportions and in terms of ergonomics and in terms of um, you know materials that are available all tend to come together very well in the sort of the family of nine you know nine plus nine is 18 one plus eight is nine and goes on adding infinitum it's a beautiful number actually but 108, of course, is is. Isn't. Uh, but while you while you were talking, I'm absolutely fascinated to hear what you were saying. But I, I also was just checking in the background uh, if I could find uh, anything which sort of coincides with 108 years. And I was started looking at the orbit of planets. And I was looking at the orbit of you know asteroids and that type of thing. If it was something which came from the sky or from from the night sky, is, is there any? You know, any connection with the sky at all or the stargazing?
8: It may be. Yeah, it may be because, again, they had, you know, in the first wave, they had that observatory and certainly it was part of esoteric curriculum, you know, the lore of the above and the lore of the below. So they would have, you know, astronomy and astrology as well as earth sciences and the grid of the earth and, All that kind of stuff. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, We don't really have time to get into it too much, but just as the Freemasons have for their central mythos, again, the story of Hiram Abiff, who is the um, architect at Solomon's Temple. um, The -hmm. Rosicrucians have, uh, again, the story of uh, Father CRC. That's all that they refer to him as. And the story that goes with, with Father CRC is that as the esoteric brotherhoods were basically coming out of the closet, uh, after the Renaissance, um, uh, certain, uh, announcements that there was this invisible college, this band of initiates that has always existed and and now they're, they're here and you can join them. And they put out these flyers. Of course, they didn't tell people how to join them, but they announced their existence. And, uh, uh, Father CRC, uh, recruited uh, a small band that, uh, went out and, uh, and taught and healed. And they had basically six rules that they lived by the uh, original Rosicrucian group much, much earlier than what I'm talking about here. But their six rules were they healed the sick without charge. That was the first one. They The second one was they weren't to wear any special garb that would make them stand out. They were to speak the language and wear the clothing of the community that they served so that they would blend in. Uh Every third year, the original founders were supposed to meet back in Germany at the headquarters, and if they couldn't come, they would send a diary or some, um you know, missive to show that they were still alive. Um, it was incumbent upon each of them in the fourth rule to seek for a worthy successor so that the lineage would continue. Um The fifth rule was the The letters um, R.C. uh, was their designated trademark that they often put on the um, uh, frontispieces of books and and important papers. And um, from the original founding, they were to remain unknown for 100 years. And then after that, they could kind of come out of the closet some more. And um, when... Father CRC died. He was entombed and uh kind of forgotten about for about 120 years. And about 120 years later, they were working on the building that they they had, and the tomb was well, found. Whereabouts the, was
0: this, Georgia? May I ask?
8: The, it's not said. It but, was somewhere. It was... Some, somewhere in Germany. It was in Germany.
0: Okay. And
8: when when they discovered the tomb again uh it, the the foundings of the rosicrucians are uh, there's a lot of speculation and there's lots of different stories about it i'm just giving you the main one um mm-hmm. when when the tomb of crc was rediscovered uh, 120 years after his burial um it, it they they supposedly found a scroll that said after 120 years i shall come forth well he kind of did in this original tomb it was vaulted with seven sides and seven corners and each of the seven sides had a doorway which would be opened and there was all kinds of books and scrolls and important um um musings let's say and artifacts in in the in the tomb and in the center of the tomb there was a circular altar that was unique because overhead there was a light that never went out and it wasn't um gas or torch or anything else there it was a um a completely unknown light source that was cool light but it was on constantly so obviously they had some kind of knowledge of you know the etheric grid of the earth such as tesla was into and and um you know probably the same kind of lighting that was used to paint the insides walls of the great pyramids because it wasn't done by it wasn't it wasn't done by mirrors or by torch there's no residue of any torch burning Anywhere in those chambers. And so they figure it had to be done by mirrors. Well, that's probably not. Sure, yeah. <laughs> not workable. May, so may I ask,
0: ask you. Yeah,
8: they had just, some sort of light may, that we don't know about. Go ahead.
0: May I ask you just to, um, I don't want to cut off the flow of your, your main story, but sort of um sort of connected with the roots as well If very very briefly did before we before we go there is it possible to name drop just a few members in history that uh who have sort of been confirmed to be part, part of the rosicrucians i mean for example you know if i said william shakespeare for example or the character we know as william shakespeare if he actually existed or if he was actually a uh, a marketed name uh, for a group of writers. I don't, I don't know. Um, is, is he connected with the Rosicrucians?
8: There are a lot of hints that uh, Francis Bacon and his group that that worked out of the um, Temple Church in London, which is called the Inns of Court. Uh, that's where yes. Bacon's group hung out. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of hints that there were uh, Rosicrucian connections uh, to that group. Um, it, you see um, hints of you see you see hints of it in the Tempest, where Prospero, which is sort of the figure of this old Atlantean magician, drowns his book and hides it uh, from the world. Um, it, there's there's a lot of hints. the The trouble is that because the Rosicrucians are more behind the scenes than the Masons, it's harder to sort out who was actually a member and who wasn't, and a member of what group or what branch. You know, uh, we have the connection um, of um, Franklin and Washington with the Ephrata group. Jefferson is a little harder to figure out, uh, Jefferson was never confirmed to be a Mason either. Um, however, uh, one of the the last pictures that I have in in the pictures up on the on the site is in one of um, uh, a sheaf of Jefferson's papers uh, that was found uh, an old ancient Rosicrucian alphabet, and on that last picture you can see it. And that's definitely uh a Rosicrucian connection. Why would why would he have that particular alphabet? Secret alphabets were all the rage. The Masons had them, the Rosicrucians had a whole bunch of them. But you can see uh reproduced there uh what was found in some of Jefferson's papers. And that's from another really interesting book uh called America's Secret Destiny. And uh anybody that's interested can pick that one up too. That one's just Chock full of some really interesting things. So I don't know I if that. Answer- thank you
0: for that one. I'll certainly you, check after the show.
8: Yeah, yeah. I don't. So, I don't know if that answers In, in, you. in
0: the opening, which I, 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 I'm just picked on one particular individual. Uh, we're coming up on a break shortly, um, and I just wanted to, you know, cast out how far this goes backwards in history and how far it goes comes present day as well so perhaps you can uh, illustrate that a little bit more just after the break you're listening to the other side of the news co-hosting with kintia and driscoll and our special guest is georgia Lambert.
3: That this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception at a, on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core. And they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, They just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet, because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Annetta, and Kenthia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide.
6: Welcome back. Tonight's show is The Legacy of the Initiates, and our special guest is Georgia Lambert, and I am joined by my co-host, Kinthea and Timothy Saunders. My name's Annetta. And, uh, Timothy, you were actually in the middle of talking with with Georgia, so let's take it up there.
0: Yeah, Georgia, I I was just really trying to understand the how far this, this vein of Rosicrucians goes back in history with a view to touch the roots and then come forward to the present day. So you know, let's go backwards in time, first of all. Are, are there sort of characters going back to, obviously we talked, touched upon ancient Egypt, but are, are there any other uh, sort of ancient civilizations mentioned in the origins of Rosicrucian organization?
8: Well, the Rosicrucians as a body was probably founded around the 1400s and became public in the 1600s. But obviously, their esoteric lineage, uh, as I said before, goes back to the alchemy of Egypt and perhaps even, you know, to um, pre-flood civilizations. Um, who knows? Um all of the modern um, esoteric brotherhoods have lineages that go go back. It's just that each one emphasizes um a different part of the same medallion. It's sort of like at one time there was this body of esoteric knowledge like a medallion and it was broken. And you have different lineages carrying on different pieces of it. And we're now in a time when it's time to put all the pieces back together. As far as going forward, and this would take a whole night to talk about, but many people know that during World War II, there was a lot of uh, very dark occult stuff that was going on under the Nazis and particularly the SS. And at that time, all of the initiatic orders of Europe uh, had banded together in uh, a group uh, which was a, a French name. Uh, the letters of which spell Fidosi, which is not something that most people know about. This was a, a group of, uh, of Templars, um, Freemasons, Rosicrucians, Martinists, um, Christian mystics. The Rosicrucians are primarily a Christian mystical uh, tradition, even though their their traditions and lineages go back, uh, you know, to Egypt. They are primarily a, a Christian version, you know. The the great Western mystery traditions. There there are several big branches. The biggest branch, of course, is the Judeo uh, branch of the Kabbalah, the the esoterics of the of the Hebrew tradition. So you have the Kabbalah. You've got Freemasonry. You've got Rosicrucianism. You've got the Matter of Britain, which is the Merlin Arthurian Holy Grail mysteries. So the Rosicrucians are one of those big Western branches that are primarily Christian. And during World War II, um, all of these initiatic orders band together to hide manuscripts from the Nazis, and many were um, captured and tortured, and, and it was a, a very bad time. Um, out of all of those orders that founded that group, only one uh, order from America was part of that, um, that conclave, and that was the Amoric Rosicrucians that we were talking about earlier under, um, uh, Mr. Lewis, who was the founding of, uh, the more modern Rosicrucians here in the United States. That's so, fascinating. so that's that's right up to modern times. Um the present Amart group um has gotten into a lot of uh psychic development, not not so much the philosophic, the deep spiritual stuff that was earlier, which is uh why I don't usually recommend it so much. Um the Max Heindel group uh in Oceanside um, that split off from them still has a lot of that philosophic stuff. Again, uh, the very famous mystic uh, Kareem Haleen was part of that group. So it goes back as far as you want to trace it up to today.
0: Okay, let me come to a uh, yeah, a, a, a very fundamental question. What do you think is happening today? What do you see is happening on today's horizon? Do you think that we are in a dark age of 108 years, or are we in a light age? I mean, how how do you explain what's happening with the planet, this kind of recurrent status of the planet?
8: Well, in esoteric terms, the planet is undergoing its initiation, its vibratory frequency is, is lifting, and humanity is being dragged along, kicking and screaming. And what we're seeing is the death throes of the old... Uh, thought and feeling of uh, the last age. And, you know, th- remember that the will to survive is a property of form or matter. The soul's immortal. It doesn't need the will to survive. Um, matter has the will to survive. And we know from Newton's third law of motion, you know, matter once in motion tends to remain in that motion until it's acted on by some stronger outside force. So matter doesn't want to change. And so this change that is happening to all life on this planet um, is being resisted by all of the forces that want to maintain the status quo. And this is in every uh, avenue of human living. And what we're seeing played out on the world stage is this conflict between the old that is dying off and fighting for its life and the new that is dawning in terms of consciousness, but it doesn't have outward forms yet. They haven't been built. And so you're seeing people responding to both of these impulses, and you have conflicts within individuals within their own makeup, as well as outpictured in the outer world.
0: I see. Well, do you think that the... I mean, it, it, from, from my perspective, maybe it's just my perspective, but in my opinion, I think there seems to be a, uh, an influence, a very strong influence behind the leaders of most of the countries on the planet at the moment, which are, uh, pursuing a certain a direction, uh, following a script going, um, yeah, enforcing this, this script on the populations of each country. Do you do you see that as well, or do you recognize that? Is that something which you could relate to?
8: That's nothing new. That's (laughs) twas ever thus. (laughs) That's true of every age and and every time, isn't it? But you know, consciousness always has this wonderful way of of breaking through, regardless of the outer form. There's a wonderful line from the the Broadway musical Man of La Mancha, right? And the little sidekick uh, uh, says, it doesn't matter whether the rock hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the rock, it's going to go bad for the pitcher, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And yeah. so, it, no matter how strong form or matter seems to be, it's never stronger than the consciousness and the soul who built it. And the soul will win out. Now, we always have the choice of learning through joy and expansion. But for some reason, because of this free will thing, humanity rarely chooses that. And we choose the hard way. We wait until our backs up are against the wall before we, we make change and we're forced into change. But change is, is, is going to come
0: as the old song says. I think change is afoot, absolutely. Abs- yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but I, I, I guess wanted... this, this is a, This is exactly what it you know needs to happen in order to to catalyze and manifest this change. I mean, this this is how far it's gone, in order for us to to actually you know react to the situation. I guess.
8: Absolutely, and I did want to get in a couple of other things about Peter Miller, uh, this do. friend. Yes, this friend of of uh, Washington. He also started uh, the first schools that were so good that the local Philadelphians sent their their sons to be educated at the schools in Ephrata. Um, he also founded scholarships for for poor kids that that couldn't afford it. And so a scholarship program was set up. Uh, again, he was a printer and a bookbinder and a lawyer and a scholar. And when the Declaration of Independence uh, was signed, um, they wanted to send it out to the other countries directly rather than uh, secondhand so that there would be no misunderstandings by these other countries as to what was being done here. So they they wanted a good translator. And uh, it was known that uh, Peter Miller spoke all these different languages. And so it was given into the hands of Peter Miller to translate into seven languages the Declaration of Independence, print them on the Rosicrucian press, and send them out. And, of course, this is not in our history books. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of interesting things that aren't in our history books. (laughs) That's true. You know? That's true. It's it's the same impulse that that keeps scientists from admitting that there have been, you know, large skeletons found in different parts of the world that, you know, archaeology doesn't really want to talk about, right?
0: Are you talking about that special hangar that uh, the Smithsonian has that nobody visits or was allowed to visit <laughs> with all the special exhibits? <laughs>
8: well, rem- remember too that the Baghdad batteries, which were these clay pots with, with copper inserts, um, were thrown into a drawer in the British Museum for years, uh, the drawer labeled miscellaneous religious objects until they figured out they were batteries that worked that we could Ah, reproduce them today.
0: Which comes back to your what you were suggesting earlier, that perhaps there was this bright light from a different source of energy.
8: Very, very likely, yeah. (laughs) So the Rosicrucians uh, had their little pause in all kinds of things. Um, Again, you know, friends of Franklin, uh, Washington, uh, pr- probably Jefferson, because of the Rosicrucian thought and, and, uh, and little scribbles he had in some of his papers. Um, we could, you know, spend a month talking about even more minutiae here, uh, as far as some of the contributions that the Rosicrucians made. Um, but ag- again, you know, first observatory, First American Bible printed. First American money printed was on the Rosicrucian presses and, and, the, and their paper mill.
6: Yeah. Yes. Because I'd like to ask a question about that. Actually, so you, you kind of alluded to this at the very beginning, which were they had lots of different skills and talents that they, they brought over to the new world. Yeah, they kind of assembled these teams. But how did they how did they attract that in the first place? Or how were they creating that initially to be able to bring it over uh, with all these different things?
8: Mm. Well, again, the original groups in England under Jane Leed, the the woman leader there and in Amsterdam and in Germany, um, they were part of that movement that were impulse that, hey, you know, now is the time. Now's the crest of the wave to take all these esoteric principles and work them out practically in some sort of community and civilization. And they couldn't really do that in the old world. Um, and so, you know, they looked west and, um, and, you know, also going back to Francis Bacon, um, In esoteric traditions, it was said that the the New World was known long before the colonization period. But tradition says that the, uh, the American continents were part of the old Atlantean Empire and carried a very materialistic vibration. And until humanity reached a certain point, it wasn't safe to colonize. And so it was only after the Renaissance and that tremendous stimulation of art and culture and mind uh, that the colonization really took off. And so they kind of got the go-ahead from the esoteric um communities in Egypt and Lhasa, Tibet and, and others. And so the the esoteric brotherhoods, Freemasonic and Rosicrucian and others, said, hey. New world's open. Let's go try all this stuff out. And they did.
6: Interesting. So, but, but it's still on, on the other end before they came over. So how were they attracting all these different talents? Because these were my understanding, unless history, you know, is pretty different than what um, my cat's saying. Hello. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, uh, it is pretty different than than what we're being told. But th- they seem to be particularly gifted, talented people in general. Yeah. I mean, there were a, there were a lot of people that were just, you know, peasants that didn't have a lot of particular skills. So what I'm asking is, is did they have special ways of, of training, or how, how did they develop this on that other end before they brought all that over here? I mean, well, and how did the- they decide to bring which things over? They
8: had that culture in the old world and they just took the, the best people. Um, the, the, uh, the esoteric communities at, in the old world were composed of the intelligentsia and the artists. And so they just naturally gravitated toward one another and, uh, and came over as a group. It was, it was a planned community from the
6: beginning. Well, I guess that's not a lot different than today, huh? I mean, it's, it's right kind of the same thing, right? Okay. Except we don't have necessarily the formal structure of it. You so. know,
8: it's very interesting that when when um, Hitler took over, he went after the esotericists first. Or, mm-hmm. uh, Rudolf Rudolf Steiner barely got out of Germany, and they burned his Gethenium to the ground, um, which was his his building, his architecture. Um, so the SS went after the esotericists and then the intelligentsia, the artists. Unless they could build, uh, bend the artists to their schemes, um,
6: they got rid of them. Yes. And, and that, that brings up something that I, I had wanted to bring, but we've kind of gone down a different little trail here. But, you know, with these, um, these vaccines that we've got, uh, they actually are, uh, well, there's there's been a a bunch of study around it and there's also a uh there's actually a bill gates is talking about affecting the the god gene which is what he's referring to the god gene which is the uh the connection with the spirituality and creativity and stuff and these are targeted in the eighth chromosome so we know that they've targeted those particular chromosomes and my my feeling on that is that They've done exactly the opposite of that. They're trying to shut all that down and stop the creativity and stop the, you know, the invention and, and knowing the consciousness that we, we are, we could access. Um, you know, what, what's your feeling on that kind of idea there? I'm not doing a very good job of explaining. apologize. <laughs> I mean, I, I have so much, to say. I have only a couple minutes here. So.
8: Well, regardless of how dark things seem to be on the surface, life always finds a way. And um, you know, it's very it's very easy to get all tied up in in the machinations of the old forces trying to keep things the same. But um, we're on the verge of lots of lots of cycles dovetailing into one another. Um, we've got a lot of old Atlantean stuff coming up for another round, you know, another turn on the spiral the karmic spiral we've got a lot of world war ii stuff we've got a lot of civil war stuff Uh, all of these cycles are dovetailing into one another and what we're seeing on the world stage are really forces from the past trying to assert their agenda into the present moment but um again, you know, consciousness moves forward regardless of the form. It's just a shame we have to make the form so painful and uncomfortable because it doesn't have to be so. Oh, I I couldn't
6: agree more. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I I mean, I I totally see how these things are trying to reinsert. At the beginning, I was talking about the Uh, you know the the uh, act of 1871 and and here we have this reinserting itself into our world and it's huge I mean it's really really has it changed the world just as the wars have and things like that and we roll around and I do think you know we're moving up and we're moving into a new time and there's this clearing out of of stuff that's kind of in the way I hate to make that sound like humans but you know if you're some people that are really stuck in the old way of thinking just aren't doing too well, or not going to do too well. I think with with moving forward. Uh, I mean, that's, that's not Einsteinian there, but um, I, I'm. It's, I'm just, uh,
8: it, it's if I can throw in something. It's very yeah. important. It's very important that, and it's so easy to do. Um, it's very important that we don't fall into the us and them kind of
3: mm. thinking
8: to realize that humanity, regardless of our sibling squabblery, we are one family. And that's going to shine through in the end, uh, regardless of how painful uh, we we make it for ourselves. Um, But again, you know, the old esoteric saying, energy follows thought and force follows attention. Um, and recognition produces relationship. Uh, it's very easy to to get all caught up in the in the dark stuff. and and we have to see that it's there because you can't change what you, what you don't see. But at the same time, um, two weapons have been used since time out of mind to keep the population in control. One is fear and one is guilt. Fear mm-hmm. is a fear is a negative attachment to the future. Guilt is a negative attachment to the past. We have to change fear into hope, which is a positive attachment to the future. And guilt, we have to change into compassion and understanding. And the all of the prejudices that are up in the world right now, all of the examples of us and them, um, uh, whether it be political or religious or scientific or f- you know, uh, cultural or whatever it happens to be, it's important to remember that the last prejudice to be overcome is the prejudice against prejudiced people,
2: and that's yeah. the, that's the hardest. I love that, Georgia. Say it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is so. so the, the last
8: prejud- prejudice to be overcome is the prejudice against prejudiced people. And and you were talking about the heart energy, and that's what it takes to get off of that fear attachment and to get beyond the separateness of the us and them and to realize that we are one life Mm -hmm. and that we'll all make it eventually, no matter how bumpy a ride we choose.
2: Wow, that's such a bright future. I love it. Thank you, Georgia. Just like, it's such an up note. You know, well, you the gotta light at f- the end of the tunnel is very bright. <laughs>
8: you got to have a few up notes these days, you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> we can use them.
8: <laughs> that Let me just close the, the effort of thing with um, the date about 1794, the fall of 1794. The Effordak community began to really die out, and it disappeared quietly out of history. And um, maybe it's time for its memory to reemerge and to recognize that it's one of the the triad that really was, you know, founding. This nation, along with the Iroquois nation and the Freemasons. The Freemasons get all the press, <laughs> but the Rosicrucians have just as strong an input uh, in the original foundings as the Freemasons.
2: Well, that's really enlightening because I don't, I don't know anyone in my circles that knew that. So, you know, it's time, maybe that's the resurrection of the 108 years, maybe they're coming up again in well, our the, awareness collectively.
8: The the uh American Amorc is supposed to go dark pretty soon as I as I said before, but whether they're going to actually sell off all of that prime real
2: estate and I don't know. I don't maybe know. they just keep it as an Egyptian museum and don't mention Rosicrucians. Possibly. Who knows? We'll see. It is a great museum. <laughs> and of course, there
8: are Rosicrucian groups all over the world. In fact, um, years ago, I, I've done many presentations for Rosicrucian groups. And years ago, um, uh, we, a- along with some of my students who were very high up in the Rosicrucian community, uh, we made, uh, tape recordings of meditations for the equinoxes and the solstices. And they were distributed to all the English-speaking Rosicrucians all over the world. They were done anonymously. And um, um there, some of those are, are still out there circulating. A lot
2: of Rosicrucians still use those meditations. So is it the case that not all of them go dark at the same time? That somewhere right. on the planet, someone... Yeah. Some, okay, so... You can recover. You can follow it around the planet, I suppose. That's the confusion because every little group
8: has been founded and goes dark at different times. They're like little bubbles all all over the globe. And since they're all connected now by the Internet, it's kind of hard for a real dark period to even occur. So how that's going to work is something new they have to face as well.
2: Or maybe it's a new, the dawning of a new age. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe it doesn't go dark. Maybe it's the ladies, full, lasting light. Go ahead, Timothy.
0: Ladies, well, thank you very much. I'm afraid it's time to close the show, so I'm just going to add the last few moments. Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, activists and innovators who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream and social media propaganda to make your own independent research and to stop acquiescing and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Remember, you were born with power and you wake up each day with power. It is up to you to choose to retain or give it away. You've been listening to another live broadcast of The Other Side of the News. This 53rd edition is entitled Legacy of the Silent Initiates and remains available to all listeners free of charge at www.theothersideofmidnight.com. My name is Timothy Saunders, together with co-host producer Kinthia, co-host Netta Jiskel. Our special thanks go to our guest, Georgia Lambert. Thank you.